This morning's passage is in the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 127. Go ahead and turn your Bibles there. This is a, a song of ascent. And if we look at the Psalms, Psalms 120 through 134 were sung by the Hebrew pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem and as they made their way up the temple steps. So let's read this together before we dive into the word. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord and the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's pray before we consider this. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. That we are not left adrift in a world not having revelation about you, but we have full revelation of you in your word. And we also have revelation of the life we are to live and how we are to remain holy and obedient to you. God, I pray that this morning as we spend time in Psalm 127, that your truth would ring true, that I would not get in the way of it. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Whether this psalm was written by David, as some think, or by Solomon, which is actually the predominance of thought, it does express what Solomon knew well, that is that all labor apart from the Lord is in vain. Now Solomon was a builder. He built hundreds of homes. He built palaces. He built the temple and so forth. And his labors were blessed because, or more accurately, while he sought the Lord. And because this psalm was written by Solomon, it's natural to think that he was referring to more than just family homes. Because he was the one that built the temple. As the son of David, he was selected to God by God to build it. So it's also very likely that Solomon was referring to the house of God in this psalm. Solomon was the son of King David. Now David unified the kingdom. He conquered Jerusalem. He defeated the Philistines. And in fact, he had so many accomplishments and exploits that it took four books in the Old Testament to document them. He is considered the greatest king Israel ever had. It would seem natural then that David would be the one to build the temple. He had the resources. He had the political power to do so. But God had spoke to him and told him, you will not build my temple because of all the blood that was on David's hands. It will be your son Solomon that will build it. Solomon understood that the work of man had its place, but it was of little ultimate use without the work and the blessing of God. Could David have built it? Certainly he could have. But he submitted to God's command, knowing that without God's work and blessing, they labor in vain who build it. There's a Latin motto that says, 
Nisi Dominus Frustra. It comes from the first words in this song, and it means without the Lord, frustration. It is the motto of the city of Edinburgh, Scotland, and it appears on its crest and on all of its official documentation. But it could be attached to the lives of many who are trying to live their life without the Almighty. And as we read this passage, as happens often in Scripture, it can refer to the, the obvious and the surface reference, building a house, but it can also refer to other things, a family, the church. And I think this is especially relevant because these verses precede other verses in which the family is emphasized on the back half of this psalm. And they're emphasized as a reward from the Lord. And in the Old Testament, it is usual to speak of a family as a house, even as we speak of a prominent family as a dynasty. In fact, in the Hebrew language, the words ben, meaning a son, bath, a daughter, and baith, a house, all come from the same root word, bana, which means to build. Because sons and daughters build up a household, or they constitute a family, as much as really as stones and timbers constitute a structure. The passage tells us that unless the Lord guards the city, it is in vain. The watchman has his role and should definitely stay awake. But God's work and blessing are needed to truly guard a city. Many a nation has built very strong walls, but they have fallen. Other nations have built powerful militaries, and yet today, they don't exist. If a nation wants to prosper and survive, it must make its reliance ultimately upon God. It is especially meaningful that Solomon wrote this psalm because he knew what it was like to both build a house and guard a city. Why Solomon understood that though God welcomed and even commanded human effort and participation to work and blessings of God were more important. Charles Spurgeon said, note that the psalmist does not bid the builder cease from laboring, nor suggest that watchmen should neglect their duty, nor that men should show their trust in God by doing nothing. Nay, he supposes that they will do all that they can do, and then he forbids their fixing their trust in what they have done and assures them that all creature comfort will be in vain unless the Creator puts forth His power. Holy Scripture endorses the order of Cromwell. Trust in God, but keep your powder dry. Verse 2 speaks of the vanity of the reliance upon the strength of man. It is vain that you do rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. This is one verse that I have not personally demonstrated well over the course of my life. For years, I would go on four to six hours to sleep a night, and even on the weekends, I was up with the sun, getting on with projects. And regretfully, it's only been the past few years that I have taken a proper observance of the Sabbath. I would come home from church, immediately don old clothes, and get busy and laborers around the place. Asleep at 11 or 12 and up at 4 was common for me. 
Thankfully, as I get a little longer in the tooth, <laughs> I'm more apt to take rest when needed. Uh, six hours is normal for me now, more on the weekends. Sundays are more restful, though I admit not always. And what my self-will spurred on is beginning to be overcome by age, and I am recognizing the importance of rest in our lives. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Now, this could have several meanings. It could be that we rest because we obey. For many years, I did not observe the Sabbath, and thus I did not get rest. It could mean that resting in the Lord is trusting in him gives us freedom from care. Most of the stress we experience in life comes from not trusting in God, not taking hold of the assurance that God is in control. And stress arises when we rely upon ourselves and our own abilities. Remember how Jesus slept amid the tumult of a storm at sea. He knew he was in his Father's hands. And therefore, he was so quiet in the spirit that the billows literally rocked him to sleep. It is our reluctance to place ourselves in the hands of the Father that prevents us from having that same calm during the crises life brings. Men who are affected by reliance on their own work experience the anxiety that comes from it. God's blessing is to give his loved ones sleep, rest. They can be at peace knowing that God's hand is at work and his eye watches even while they're asleep. We can also gather that Solomon did not speak against hard work because throughout the Proverbs, which he wrote, many refer to the diligence that hard work, uh, that being diligent at hard work brings glory. And from the first verse of this psalm, we understand that Solomon intended to trust that many put in their hard work and the anxiety showed reliance on their self, not God. It's not vain to rise up early, but it's vain to rise up early without the Lord. He continues now and speaks of the reward of children. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. This points to another mode of building up a house, namely by leaving descendants to keep our name and our family alive. Without this, what is the purpose in man's accumulation of wealth? We're going to pass, and that wealth remains. To what purpose does he build a house if he has none in his household to hold the house after him? Yet in this matter, a man is powerless without the Lord. Look at the men who have tried to create a dynasty by conquering the world. Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, Lenin. None of these men had any offspring to carry on their name. Today, they have no dynasty. There are thousands of wealthy people that would give half of everything they have just to hear the sound of the cry of a baby from their own bloodline. Children are a heritage which Jehovah himself must give, or a man will die childless, and thus his house, his heritage, will be unbuilt. And the fruit of the womb is a reward. It's a reward from God. He gives children not as a penalty or as a burden, but as a favor 
they are a blessing for good if men know how to receive them and educate them. When, so when society is rightly ordered, children are regarded not as an encumbrance or a burden or as inconvenience, but as an inheritance. And they are not, I receive not with regret, but as a reward. The verse continues, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Children born to men in their early days, by God's blessing, become a comfort to them in their later years. A man of war is glad for weapons that which may fly where he cannot go. Good sons are their father's arrows, speeding to hit the mark which they aim at. What can be accomplished by a man who sires, raises, and sends out godly children to carry on? To this end, we must have our children in hand while they are yet children or they're never likely to be as they should be when they are grown up. We must point and straighten them so as to make arrows of them in their youth, lest they should prove crooked and unserviceable. May the Lord favor us with loyal, obedient, affectionate offspring, so we, we shall find in them our best helpers. We shall see them shot forth into life to our comfort and delight if we take care from the very beginning to make sure they are directed to the right point. You see, in many ways, children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. First, they must be carefully shaped and formed. It has been said that for arrows are no arrows by growth, but by art. So they must be such children, the naughtiness of whose nature is refined and reformed and made smooth by grace and then they are cared for. Arrows may be formed from wood, but they don't, maybe come from wood, but they're not formed as an arrow. It takes labor and intent to turn a branch into an arrow, and so it is with children. Just like an arrow, they must be guided with skill and with strength. An arrow has no purpose without an aim point and being propelled in that direction. Children bringing glory to God does not happen accidentally or without purpose. As parents, we are to provide both that aim point, that goal, as well as give them the flight or forward momentum towards it. Just as heirs, they must be given care or they will not fly straight. Goal setting and encouragement are not one-time events. It takes 17 or 18 years to raise a child or Sadly, for some in this day and age, 35. As parents, though, we must never wane in our purposefulness. An arrow untended can warp due to influences such as moisture or improper storage. And so can a child be warped if he or she is left to be influenced by the world, unabated by parental influence and shaping. Just as arrows, they must be aimed and given direction, they will not find direction on their own. Parenting is much more than simply providing. 
Parenting is with the aim of the child becoming not just a productive adult, but an adult that is God-fearing and kingdom-focused, ready to guide and influence within their own sphere that God places them. Yet this, is, this only happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. But it is the parents through whom the Holy Spirit most effectively works in this regard. Like arrows, children have the potential for much good or evil. As with any weapon, an arrow is intrinsically benign. Of itself, it's neither good nor evil. How it is used and for what reason it is used defines whether it is good or bad. Arrows can be used to murder. They can be used to protect. The potential is there for both, and within each of us lies the potential for great evil. We know that. And as parents, we must help our children know the difference and cultivate the desire for good, helping them overcome and master their own inclinations and potential for evil through submission to Christ as Lord. Verse 5 says, Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. These two verses were what Carrie and I placed on our eldest birth announcement. And yet as young, untested parents, little did we know how true these words were. Intellectually, we knew the principle was true because God's word stated so. It was with great anticipation we longed for that reward, not fully realizing what it would be. It's only after 28 years of labor, trials, and sacrifice that we truly know the meaning of those words. I can honestly say I've never been happier than now, seeing my children as adults. Children definitely mean trials, but those trials both develop us and draw us closer to the Lord. I'll share with you that for a great number of years, I felt somewhat a failure. My place in life, the work I was doing was not what I intended to be doing. And it left me feeling like I was kind of spinning along, guided by life rather than me guiding it. Then a few years ago, as my children became adults, I realized I was doing what I was designed for. I was raising another generation. And by the grace and gifting of God for this next generation, my four children, they were surpassing me in character, ability, and zeal for God. I now feel the great comfort of knowing that there is glory in the gray of my beard. And though my, though my body is weakening, my strength is waning, my heart is full and joyous of what God is doing in and through my children. Relating this to a larger context, we can also see that the principle, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain, we can really see how this applies to the church as well. After all, this was Solomon's charge and privilege to build the temple in Jerusalem. And whether we speak of our nuclear families or the church, the principle is applicable. Just as parents, we desire our children to grow into capable and wise adults 
who live lives more impactful and holy than, than our own, as members of this church, we should strive to disciple and grow the next generation to take this church even further, to make it more effective for kingdom work than we have ever realized. This happens neither naturally or accidentally. We must be purposeful. It is incumbent upon us not to seek, you, seek a refuge from the world, but with the counsel and the leading of the Holy Spirit and the provision of the Lord's equipping for us to train and develop a weapon against the evil that rules this present world. And that's what this church is. Just as we should raise a family and not merely propagate one, we, the saints, should toil and sacrifice to raise a church and not merely attend one. And just as the builder of the home or the watchman on the wall, those efforts should be centered and reliant upon the strength and direction that God gives us. The passage tells us the fruit of the womb is a reward. And sadly, though Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, we know of only one of his specific descendants. Perhaps Solomon knew very little of this reward. Sad and strange that the lessons of this psalm, relevant as they were to King Solomon's own situation, were mostly lost on him. In the book of 1 Kings, we see that his building, both literal, literal and figurative, became reckless. His kingdom became a ruin. And his marriage is a disastrous denial of God. But here it is written for us. And his losses should be the inspiration for us to retain our focus on fulfilling God's intent for our families, our homes, and our church. It says, happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. Since children are a reward, which is explained in verse 3, then there is great blessing and happiness in having children. And this does not mean that those with, that, with few children are not blessed, though there certainly is blessing with numbers. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, a quiver may be small and yet full, and then the blessing is obtained. In any case, we may be sure that man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the children that he possesses. There's an old German proverb that says, many children make many prayers, and many prayers bring much blessing. Laboring as a parent for godly and Christ-loving children takes purpose, intentionality, doggedness. It's all effective if it is done with the aim point of godliness. And then there's a, a phrase here towards the end that may seem a little strange to us, but they shall speak with their enemies in the gate. The gate of an ancient city was a place of business. It's where the courts were held, so it was a place of justice. And this verse speaks of children of the godly having places of prominence and influence in their communities. What we have here is a wonderful picture of a properly functioning community. The idea is that of a prosperous city, its enemies kept outside the gates, and that of a, the secret of its prosperity being the houses, meaning the households, being well-built, 
in the spiritual and moral sense. And the families dwelling within, within such houses being able to deal with the enemies in the gate. Now, as a young father, one of the greatest feelings is having your son think, wow, dad is so strong. Now, I've reached the point now where both my sons are much stronger than I am, yet somehow this is not sadness, but a sense of enjoyment. I've got a six-foot-five Marine on one side and a martial arts master son on the other. I tell people, bring it. You know, I'm ready. Yeah, my sons can physically protect me from my enemies in my old years. However, this is not the enemy principally spoken of here in this passage. If you are a friend of Christ, you are an enemy of Satan. His attacks against saints will not abate as we age, as our walk with Christ deepens and your Christian influence grows, so will the attacks of Satan against you. He will see you as more and more of a threat and his attacks will both sophisticate and increase. As a father who has raised four children to adulthood, and can look at them and see the evidence of their own faith in Christ. That very testimony can come to my defense against attacks by the father of lies. It strengthens and it encourages me when attacks come my way. And it is a credit to the importance of perseverance in our long walk with the Lord through this world strewn with spiritual dangers and traps. Has my walk been perfect? Of course not. Have I grieved the Holy Spirit? Unfortunately, many, many times. But I remain true to the cause of Christ. And I remain faithful to my captain. And as my children grow in their own walk with Jesus, and as they mature spiritually, it is a testimony to the labors and prayers that their mother and I have invested in their development and their discipline. It is a source of comfort in my older years to know that my children are capable. And as time diminishes my own ability to be the protective warrior, my children can pick up the mantle and we know that their love will not leave us in peril. We are given a picture, though, that transcends, again, our nuclear families. It's also a picture of the same confidence and trust we can have in our church. With our natural children, they don't actually grow into spiritually strong saints. It is only the work of the Holy Spirit and the redemptive blood of Jesus that brings them to salvation. But as parents, we are the principal means through which the Holy Spirit operates. And after salvation, parents had the greatest ability to disciple and grow those believers who are young in both years and faith. And it doesn't happen quickly. This occurs with a lifetime of love, care, nurturing, discipline, and teaching. And it is, it is the same with our church. For this body of believers to be effective in kingdom work, in a lost world, we must be purposeful in our words, our deeds. We must be relentless in our pursuit of personal holiness, and we must have the same sacrificial love we exhibit as parents of children. Even in our small congregation, as I look around, I can see the mirror of a human family. 
Just as a brood of children can span a decade or more of age difference, so it is with the spiritual maturity of believers within a church body. Not everyone here is at the same point in their walk with Jesus or in the process of sanctification. We're at varying levels of grace and understanding. Uh, varying levels of grace and understanding must be applied to the different people here. A young child is granted grace where they lack because of their youth. An adult child is expected to be responsible. Well, like an adult. Let us have grace with the new believer. And for those who have matured in their faith, let us act accordingly. Just as with any family that functions properly, it's not only the father and the mother who labor, but everyone has a role to play in the family, in the establishment upkeep of the home. I see that here among you. I see members coming alongside another one who is struggling with sin and discipling them and walking with them and being an encouragement to them. I see some of you going to another member who is spiritually or emotionally weary and lifting them up and encouraging them. Being a comfort. Church is not a spectator sport. We're meant to get in the game. And just as with any family, I can see the continued growth of the faith of the individuals with time and the maturing of the saints occurring. This is the principal aim of church life, the sanctification and discipleship of believers. This happens by seeking and submitting to the Holy Spirit in our own lives. And as a natural result, we grow together in that process. And just as with the family, this does not happen without purposefulness, without a grittiness to endure. This doesn't happen without the same unconditional love a parent has for a child. We must love one another, knowing that every person here is God's unique creation. That person that maybe irritates you or tests your patience, you have to remember that person is the apple of God's eye. Whether we are talking about our heritage, building a family, or work for the kingdom, we must remember that all is in vain unless we are relying upon the Lord. And that may mean very direct matters like obeying his commandments, trusting even when our human logic conjures up something with the appearance that to us may make more sense or appear more logical, but still relying upon God's word and being obedient. It could mean resting firmly in the knowledge that he is true and faithful and wants what is best even when our emotions scream that we have been abandoned and we're helpless or full of fear. Psalm 127 is ultimately a call to believers to trust and persevere. Yes, we are to labor, but we are not to labor like those at Babel who chose their own glory over their creators. As we prepare to close, I want to briefly look back at verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. In the same way, so is this congregation a heritage from the Lord. What we labor for as a united band of believers has a generational impact for kingdom work. 
is just as much a heritage as our children are. This year will be a new year for Christ's covenant. Through the shepherding of Rich Brown, we can do a lot of work, yet it could all be in vain. If we take the mindset of, well, now we have a pastor and we can, he can fix everything and get all the work done, we will be like a man who has no offspring. We will have no heritage. But with the combined focus of serving Jesus and relying upon God the Father, our labors will not be in vain, but will be a blessing to us and our community as well. By trusting and relying upon God, as we press our shoulders to the grindstone, to the task of discipleship and service, we can build a heritage that pleases God and as a result brings great joy both to our Heavenly Father and to us. As we embark on the year 2021, I'm grateful to do so alongside each of you. And I count myself fortunate to be in your ranks. We are blessed as verse 5 describes and we shall not be put to shame when we speak of our enemies in the gate. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this church will be built through the labors of the saints, but by reliance upon the Lord. I pray that it would be built in a manner that brings glory to you, and I pray that each of us would one day look back and have comfort and joy that we raised our families well, built houses with a heritage, and that our labors in this church body have a lasting benefit for kingdom work. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.